Chapter Thirty Seven of the Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter Thirty Seven. The two costumes which the neophyte found displayed in her chamber were a brilliant bride's dress and a mourning garment, with all the distinctive signs of widowhood. She hesitated some moments. Her resolution as to the choice of husband was taken, but which of these two costumes would externally testify her intention? After a little reflection she put on the white robe, the veil, the flowers, and the pearls of a bride. This attire was pure in taste and extremely elegant. Consuelo was soon ready but on looking at herself in the mirror framed with threatening sentences, she had no longer an inclination to smile as on the first occasion. A mortal paleness was on her features, and terror in her heart. Whichever course she had resolved to take, she felt that there would remain to her a regret or a remorse, that a soul would be broken by her desertion, and her own experienced a horrible anguish in anticipation. On seeing her cheek and her lips as white as her veil and her orange flowers, she feared for Albert and for Liverani equally, the effect of so violent an emotion, and she was tempted to put on rouge, but she renounced the thought at once. If my face lies, thought she, can my heart lie? She knelt by the side of her bed, and hiding her face in the drapery, she remained absorbed in sorrowful meditation until the moment when the clock struck midnight. She rose immediately and saw an invisible, with a black mask standing behind her. I know not what instinct made her presume this to be Marcus. She was not deceived, and yet he did not make himself known, but only said to her in a gentle and sad voice, Madam, all is ready. Please to cover yourself with this cloak and to follow me. Ah, said Consuelo, as she wrapped herself in the black cloak that was presented to her. This is Cagliostro's hood. There is no Cagliostro here, replied Marcus, and our mysteries are neither treacheries nor impostors. Do not bring the hood over your head. It is not yet time. Consuelo followed the invisible to the extremity of the garden, to the place where the stream lost itself under the verdant arcade of the park. There she found an uncovered gondola, entirely black, similar in every respect to the gondolas of Venice, and in the gigantic rower at the prow she recognized Karl, who crossed himself on seeing her. "'Am I permitted to speak to him?' asked Consuelo of her guide. "'You may,' replied the latter. "'Say a few words to him aloud.' "'Well, my dear Karl, my liberator and my friend,' said she, agitated at again seeing a familiar face after so long a seclusion among mysterious beings." Can I hope that nothing disturbs the pleasure you feel at finding me again? Nothing, signora, replied Karl in an assured voice. Nothing, unless it be the remembrance of her who is no longer in this world, and whom I always think I see by the side of you. Courage and contentment, my good mistress, my good sister. We are now as we were on the night when we escaped from Spandau. This is also a day of deliverance, brother, said Marcus. Come, row with the skill and the vigour with which you are gifted, and which are now equalled by the prudence of your tongue and the strength of your soul. This indeed resembles a flight, madam, added he, addressing Consuelo. 
but the principal deliverer is no longer the same. As he uttered these last words, Marcus presented his hand to assist her to a seat upon a bench covered with cushions. He felt her tremble slightly at the remembrance of Liverani, and requested her to cover her face for a few moments only. Consuelo obeyed, and the gondola, impelled by the stout arm of the deserter, glided rapidly over the dark and silent waters. After a passage, the duration of which could by no means be appreciated by the pensive Consuelo, she heard the sound of voices and instruments at a little distance. The bark diminished its speed and received without entirely stopping the slight shocks of the border. The hood fell softly, and the neophyte thought she passed from one dream to another on contemplating the fairy-like spectacle presented to her eyes. The bark glided along, grazing a level bank covered with flowers and fresh grass. The water of the stream, widened and motionless in a vast basin, was as if on fire, and reflected colonnades of light, which intertwined in fiery serpents, or were broken in showers of sparkles under the slow and measured motion of the gondola. Admirable music filled the echoing air, and seemed to hover over the thickets of roses and balmy jessamines. When Consuelo's eyes became accustomed to this sudden brightness, she could fix them upon the illuminated façade of the palace, which rose at a very small distance and was depicted in the mirror of the basin with a magic splendor. That elegant edifice delineated upon the starry sky those harmonious voices, that concert of excellent instruments, those open windows before which between the purple curtains and kindled by the light, Consuelo saw slowly moving men and women richly dressed, glittering with embroidery, diamonds, gold, and pearls, with powdered heads which gave to the general aspect of the assemblies of that age a reflection of brightness, a something I know not what, of effeminate and fantastic. All that princely fight, combined with the beauty of a warm and serene night, which wafted perfume and freshness even into the splendid halls, filled Consuelo with a vivid emotion, and caused in her a kind of intoxication. She, a daughter of the people, the queen of patrician fates, could not see a spectacle of this kind after so many days of captivity, of solitude and dark reveries, without experiencing a sort of transport, a necessity for singing, a peculiar thrill at the approach of a public. She therefore rose erect in the bark which approached the palace nearer and nearer, and suddenly, excited by Handel's chorus, Chantons le gloire de Yuda Vincar, she forgot everything to mingle her voice in that song of majestic enthusiasm. But a new shock of the bark, which, while grazing the bank of the lake, sometimes encountered a branch or a tuft of trees, made her totter. Compelled to seize the first hand that presented itself for her support, she only then perceived that there was a fourth person in the bark, a masked invisible, who certainly was not there when she entered it. An immense dark grey cloak with long folds, a broad-brimmed hat worn in a peculiar manner, I know not what in the features of that mask through which the human face seemed to speak, but more than all the rest, the pressure of that trembling hand which did not wish to withdraw from hers caused Consuelo to recognize the man whom she loved, the Chevalier Liverani, as he had first shown himself to her on the lake of Spandau. Then the music, the illumination, the enchanted palace, the intoxicating fate, and even the approach of that solemn moment which was to determine her destiny. All that was not the present emotion was effaced from Consuelo's memory.
Agitated and as if overcome by superhuman force, she again fell palpitating upon the cushions of the bark by the side of Liverani. The other unknown, Marcus, was standing at the prow, with his back turned towards them. Her fasting, the Countess Vanda's recital, the expectation of a terrible denouement, the unexpectedness of this fate seen in passing had broken all Consuelo's strength. She felt nothing but Liverani's hand clasping her own, his arm grazing her waist, ready to prevent her withdrawing from him, and that divine agitation which the presence of a beloved object diffuses even in the air we breathe. Consuelo remained some minutes thus, not seeing the glittering palace any more than if it had sunk into the deep night, sensible of nothing but the burning breath of her lover by her side and the beatings of her own heart. Madam, said Marcus, suddenly turning towards her, do you not know that air, and would you not be pleased to stop and hear that magnificent tenor? Whatever be the air and the voice, replied Consuelo absently, let us stop or go on, do as you please. The bark almost touched the walls of the chateau. They could distinguish the figures standing in the embrasures of the windows, and even those who passed in the depths of the apartments. These were no longer spectres floating as in a dream, but real personages, lords, great ladies, learned men, artists, several of whom were not unknown to Consuelo, but she made no effort of memory to distinguish their names nor the theatres or palaces in which she had before seen them. The world had suddenly become to her a magic lantern, without significance and without interest. The only being who appeared living to her in the universe was that one whose hand was secretly burning hers under the folds of their cloaks, do you not know that fine voice which is singing a Venetian air? asked Marcus anew, surprised at Consuelo's immobility and apparent indifference, and as she did not appear to hear either the voice which spake to her nor that which sang, he approached a little nearer and seated himself on the bench opposite her in order to renew his question. A thousand pardons, sir, replied Consuelo, after having made an effort to listen. I was not paying attention. I do know that voice, in fact, and that air. It was I who composed it a long while ago. It was very bad, and very badly sung. What then, returned Marcus, is the name of that singer with respect to whom you seem to me so severe? I consider him admirable myself. Ah, you have not lost it, said Consuelo in a low voice to Liverani, who had just made her feel in the hollow of her hand the little cross of filigree, with which she had parted for the first time in her life when she confided it to him on her journey from Spandau to Blank. Do you not remember the name of that singer? obstinately resumed Marcus, attentively examining Consuelo's features. Excuse me, sir, replied she with a little impatience. His name is Ansoletto. Ah, the bad Ray, he has lost that note. Would you not like to see his face? You're mistaken, perhaps. From here you could distinguish him perfectly, for I see him very well. He's a very handsome young man. What good would it do to look at him, returned Consuelo, a little vexed. I'm very sure he's still the same. Marcus gently took Consuelo's hand, and Liverani seconded him to assist her to rise and look through the window, which was wide open. Consuelo, who would perhaps have resisted the one, yielded to the other, cast a glance upon the singer upon that handsome Venetian who was, at that moment, the central point of attraction for a hundred feminine glances. He has grown very fat, 
said Consuelo, reseating herself and secretly resisting the fingers of Liverani, who wished to recover the little cross, and did so, in fact. "'Is that all the remembrance you grant to an old friend?' returned Marcus, who still fastened a lynx-eyed glance upon her through his mask. "'He's only a comrade,' replied Consuelo, "'and among comrades in our profession we're not always friends. "'But would you have no pleasure in speaking to him? "'What if we should enter the palace and you were requested to sing with him?' "'If this be a trial,' said Consuelo with a little malice, "'for she began to notice Marcus's persistence, "'as I must obey you in all things, I will readily undergo it.' But if it be for my pleasure that you make me this offer, I like as well to be excused. Must I stop here, brother? asked Carl, making a military gesture with his oar. Pass, brother, and push off, replied Marcus. Carl obeyed, and in a few moments the bark, having crossed the basin, was enclosed by dense thickets. The darkness became profound. The little lantern, suspended from the gondola alone, threw bluish rays upon the surrounding foliage. From time to time, through the vistas of dark verdure, they still saw the lights of the palace glitter faintly from afar. The sounds of the orchestra slowly died away. The bark, as it grazed the bank, touched the flowering branches, and Consuelo's black cloak was covered with their balmy petals. She began to return to herself and to combat that indefinable emotion of love and might. She had withdrawn her hand from Liverani, and her heart was oppressed in proportion as the veil of intoxication fell before the lights of reason and of will. "'Listen, madam,' said Marcus. "'Do you not hear, even from this distance, the applauses of the audience?' "'Yes, truly, there are clappings of hands and acclamations. They are delighted with what they've just heard. That Ansoletto has a great success at the palace.' They are not good judges, said Consuelo, hurriedly seizing a magnolia which Liverani had gathered in passing and stealthily thrown upon her lap. She convulsively pressed the flower in her hands and hid it in her bosom as the last relic of an unconquered love which the fatal trial was about to sanctify or to break for ever. End of chapter 37 Read by Sandra, near Montreal, 2022